Oh, yeah. Yeah, always start recording, get the best bits right at the beginning. Oh, we could use this for a cold open. Oh, yeah, it'd be a great cold open, man. You're in a bad mood, huh? <laughs> and just, oh, I, I, it's man. nothing. I, I mean, it, it made me realise actually how much I enjoy doing the podcast. I'm it's just... It's all about your tell-all PMC account. It will just be, it will be... Opening, opening the PMC kimono. <laughs> <laughs> the PMC commode. Uh, I don't know. Um, no, I'm just. Um, I'm. I think I'm probably the first person to have had frustrations in their their daily working life. <laughs> Someone should write a book. Someone should write a book about work. Oh, fucking hell! So, um, you do wonder though. You know, like I do wonder. Maybe it just always was this bad, and then I think. I'm sure it must. I don't mean like, you know, the kind, obviously, you know, the number of hours and so on. And I'm purely talking about the academy. I'm not talking about any other kind of work. But I do think like, at least for the academy, and I expect other kind of professional middle class jobs, surely it was better in the past. I, I mean, that's, that's that is that is that is talking about people having written books about it because academics write books and there's people who study work. They've written about their own work and, and their own work processes and whatever. And the whole point is that academic, academia is always taken as a as an example of, you know, bureaucratization, yeah. time pressure and all the rest. Right. I mean, why? why oh, I mean, the whole surely, point was surely it was better before. Right. But then there was also fewer academics and there are fewer students and it was all. Yeah, well, that's more... the thing. I know it kind of I just, you know, I'm always, you know, I oscillate between thinking it is just a kind of the conceited gripe of the moment, you know, and on the other hand, yeah. thinking, you know, surely, surely it can't have been the insanity can't have been quite as bad as this, you know, like with the fucking people, people with penises and all that bullshit. Oh, that's I think, um, right. Yeah. No, I, th I, th I think, I think there, there was a golden era um, of being an academic when it was the new clerisy. And so it was like, you didn't have too many students. You didn't have too many responsibilities of, of bureaucratization. Uh, you still had a bit of prestige. You know, you could go and get all of your free lunches and, and dinners. Well, I think that wasn't the clarity. The clarity is now because the clarity yeah, is exactly. what we have as acting the role of the clerics, kind of um, ideological legitimation. Yeah, well, I mean that was always that was always the case, but I, I know, mean man. to a greater or lesser extent. Well, I mean, uh, the, you know. academics were never like, oh yeah, we were just sticking it to the man with our with our ideas from they our should, ivory I mean, towers about how how there should be fewer ivory towers and they should be made out of more sustainable. No, but ivory. my point is, my point is that they didn't have they didn't have um, the because they had less of a role. The idea that academic ideas had a legitimating role is less plausible. Whereas, given you know. The extent, the numbers of people who pass through academic hands, the size of the institutions, the em the cultural emphasis on our education, all of that means that it has a larger role to play in social life and political life than it did before. And um, probably internally, think, and probably internally, it's much more subject to all the kind of culture wars because it's probably more traditionalist before. Traditionalist, yeah, I don't mean like in a really conservative way, but no, just kind of people going about the little yeah. things and whatever. Yeah. I, I think mean, it's problematic that you would use the phrase "passing through academic." hands i think there should be a no touching policy like a like a california jail no touching no touching that should be the um the sure standard operating procedure jails. i'm talking about arrested development i mean everything i know about american life and specifically the oc uh comes from arrested development and that's despite don't having tell, been don't to the tell oc that to catherine yeah, yeah don't tell that to catherine man <laughs> 
No, I mean, we actually went to the frozen banana stand when Alex and I went there. Which was the highlight, um, obviously, yeah. It was really good, though, frozen banana. I would have hoped the highlight was recording a wonderful session that we had as part of that was up there. series. That was in the top three. I mean, hey, was, have... George, George got really horny for the whole thing, but then uh, his banana got frozen, and uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> and then I ate the banana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's, okay. it's no, it's no Georgism. People, people love, people love that shit. People love you, man. They love you. I know. You responsibilities to your it's, followers. It's it's too much pressure. Deliver? It's too much pressure. I think there's a silent wonder... majority who are who are sick of it, and they and, they've, and, they've, and they, <laughs> they just need a leader who well, will should... tell them that they should rise up against Georgism because they they're just letting yeah. the George you know, uh, liberal elite walk all over them. And there's a silent majority <laughs> who are really deeply down, deep down frustrated. Yes. If, they're, if they're silent, they should fucking stay shutting the fuck up. And, but that's and kind of the, how I feel about silent majorities. Right. Yeah, generally, they should shut the fuck up or speak up. Just uh, you don't know. don't let the silent majority, like, uh, you know, start speaking up, George, because you know what happens. <laughs> well, they should start their own podcast if they're... they're that's, that's how you counter the silent majority. You give them all a USB microphone. <laughs> and uh, yeah. a Podbean account. Uh, right. Anyway, Any welcome chance? everyone to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is The Reading Club. We're recording this on Thursday, the 25th of November. This is Alex Hokey, as usual. You probably know that by now, but maybe you're new. Maybe you've just joined and uh, you have no idea who any of us are. So that's me. Philip Cunliffe uh, is on the right side of my screen and uh, George Hoare is on the left side of my screen. Uh, but they're real people too. And they're in the UK while I'm in uh, Sao Paulo, and Brazil. And it, no, it has no correspondence with political positioning. No, indeed. And we like hearing your voice, Alex, because you have a wonderful accent. And so we love listening to it every time that you open up Half a Bunga Bunga. I feel, like, I feel like, like I'm getting set up here for, <laughs> for being slapped down. No, we just want to say that it's, you know, I guess that there is some um, some intrigue or some some peril uh, for the listener. How will you pronounce your surname this time? It's different every time. Mm. And so it gives a little bit of variety. <laughs> well, there. and of course, e there ephemeral, is... fluctuating, fragmented, uh, constantly changing. <laughs> it's the modernity of surnames. Precisely. But the reason why there is, you know, it doesn't make sense to, to look left to right in terms of podcasts. We're all, I think we'd all describe ourselves as radical centrists, right? We're all, we're all just looking for that precise center point. Yeah. Um, Triangulation is our thing. And <laughs> we've, we've now reached the middle <laughs> of the triangle. Anyway, uh, George, why don't you introduce what we're actually going to be talking about? Yeah, so today it's Marshall Berman's 1982 book, All That Is Solid Melts Into Air, The Experience of Modernity. Um, and this is, I think, um, a, a book in which Berman attempts to give a theoretical account of the experience of living a quote-unquote modern life. And just to get just to get all of our motors running, um, I wanted to just read out a couple of quotes. I hope that you will indulge me. Um, and I guess as, as the listener, you, you either indulge me or you just skip forward past this bit and I won't know either way. So uh, anyway, <clears throat> to be modern is to live a life of paradox and contradiction. It is to be overpowered by the immense bureaucratic organizations that have the power to control and often destroy all communities, values, lives, and yet to be undeterred in our determination to face these forces, to fight to change the world and to make it our own. It is to be both revolutionary and conservative, alive to new possibilities for experience and adventure, frightened by the nihilist depths to which so many modern adventures lead, 
longing to create and hold on to something real, even as everything melts. We might even say that to be fully modern is to be anti-modern. From Marx and Dostoevsky's time to our own, it has been impossible to grasp and embrace the modern world's potentialities without loathing and fighting against some of its most palpable realities. Um, yeah, sorry, that was actually quite difficult to read because that was in my own handwriting. So, <laughs> and then just a second one to throw this in to, to get listeners to uh, thinking right, right at the start. Um, so Berman also writes, when contemporary mon- modernists lose touch with and deny their own modernity, they echo only the ruling class delusion that it has conquered the troubles and perils of the past. And meanwhile, they cut themselves off and cut us off from a primary source of their own strength. So yeah, so today talking about modernity, modernism, all the good stuff like that. So just a little bit of, of an intro before bringing Alex and Phil back in. Uh, so Marshall Berman, who, who uh, passed away in 2013, was, a, was an urbanist and an urban theorist, also described himself as a humanist Marxist. And in his book, Adventures in Marxism, which is a, a really good reader set of essays about various Marxist thinkers um, and a very personal account, he has a great story of him having basically half read the Communist Manifesto as a young man and getting it as a Hanukkah present for everybody that he knew in this kind of burst of, of useful, youthful enthusiasm. And this book, and particularly a couple of passages from it, clearly made an impact on him because this, of course, is where the title of the book comes from. So the book itself, which is Berman's most uh, famous, is, I guess it, it looks at some of the theories, some of the, the literary and, and um, urban practices of, of modernism, um, so, for example, he takes Faust, the story of um, Dr. Faust or Faustus, or however you might might uh, frame this as a literary account of modernity. And um, basically his his reading of this, which isn't in the introduction, but is in a later chapter of the book. So you can you know go and go away and read that if you haven't already after this discussion, if, if you find it interesting. Um, he essentially kind of frames this or understands it as a the tragedy of calling up something and, and that thing essentially overpowering you. He calls it the tragedy of development. Um, and again, there's a, a, a line from the Communist Manifesto that modern bourgeois society, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the underworld that he has called up by his spells. So if anybody, uh, if any listeners have, have seen Fantasia, it's, it's that kind of five Mickey Mouse um, losing control of his, um, of his spells. And so just to kind of put this into some, some context, um, it's kind of interesting here because clearly Berman sees uh, Faust, uh, Goethe's Faust and sees Marx as some of the classic thinkers of modernity. And someone like C.L.R. James would, would say, actually, it's the 17th century. So a little bit earlier, which is the beginning of the modern world. Shakespeare is this, the beginning of modern drama, this great dramatist of individual character, the levelers of the birth of modern democracy and Descartes as the beginning of modern philosophy. So Goethe's Faust is a little bit later in the 1830s. So, yeah, so this, this book kind of moves through St. Petersburg and New York as some urban examples of modernity, talks about Baudelaire as well. And the central character, though, is Marx, who is the theorist who understands the contradictory nature of modernization. So not to make this into a seminar, obviously, but just some some key terms um, which could be useful, which I think we'll 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 you know try and use uh, with some precision. And I think you know Alex and Phil might disagree with with my definitions here, but modernity essentially being a period of history which has a distinctive um, experience if you if you live in it modernization is a process 
of dizzying social change. So that that kind of change and modernism is a movement in art, literature, and architecture, which has a distinctive set of characteristics. So there we go. That's that's the preamble. That's the uh, the the, the warm up, uh, the, the 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 stretches before the match com- completed. Um, so to bring you back in, Phil and Alex, what did you um, initial reflections on on this? The introduction to this book. Did you really like it? Is it is it wicked? Is it wicked? That's a that's a that's a reference which again some listeners may, may get, and if if they don't, yeah, they should. It's, uh, a UK it's, a, it's not a good song, but it was oh. in my head for some reason today. Thank you for putting it in our heads. It's I did. I mean, it's been a very long time since I um, since I looked at this, and I really only cannibalized it when I was an undergraduate, and it was kind of a set text. And I can't really. The weird thing is, I can't really recall why I didn't get on better with it when um you know all those years ago whereas reading it now i mean perhaps you know the scale of kind of reference and the um the kind of the scope of the vision was maybe just too broad for me as an 18 year old um, or 19 whatever it was um whereas you know i think it's kind of um it's genuinely wonderful i'm not sure um i buy the whole picture but it's it's tremendously impressive and um the you know, through his own kind of his own writing, he conveys a sense of exhilaration, um, which in itself is, you know, quite marvelous and um, effective, I think, to induce that experience of reading it. Yeah, it's funny, I had a similar experience, Phil, actually, in, in I mean, I read it maybe a little bit later, maybe I was 21 or 22. But I remember having to read it really quickly for for um, for my studies. And so I didn't really fully digest it. It was a book that I wanted to like more than I actually liked. Uh, and what struck me reading it now is how maybe just having a better sense of, you know, recent history, how much that book and the period in which it was written in, which is to say the late 70s, how much it's written in the shadow of the 1960s and how much that shadow has come into view. Basically, all the um, disappointments with the unrealized dreams of the 60s, which were very much a part of the 1970s, he's probably started writing this in the late 70s, you know, and it's published in the early 80s. And how much of this is is somehow about that? It's about, um, you know, maybe seeing the 1960s as the last tarrying with modernity, the last attempt, unevenly, maybe undialectically, and so on. But that the 60s represented perhaps the last moment of modernism or problematizing of modernity and uh, after then that kind of faded into the background as he kind of argues through throughout the book um so anyway well my, my takeaway i guess initially was just like wow this this is really of that moment it doesn't mean it's not relevant anymore or anything like that but uh, i think putting that in that context is pretty interesting when when i first read this you know struck by the i guess the the energy of, of the writing and the kind of the enthusiasm and the the communication of uh, or, or the attempt to, to to describe a modern life as one which is full of of energy and, and possibility as well as contradiction. I mean that is that is pretty um, that is that is pretty appealing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean I think it's it's also worth obviously us uh, um, adopting a, a critical perspective on this. So the, the first the first thing I think that we want to sort of get into a little bit is this question of what is this in Berman's view what is this characteristic experience of of modernity what is it that defines um a modern life so I can um 
I don't know if I can answer about Berman, but I still think like the best, and this is going to maybe give too much away, but um, the best definition of modernity that I think, or that's still kind of the most evocative and I think effective is the famous um, uh, Baudelaire poem from The Flowers of Evil um, to a passerby, where he kind of capture he catches um, eyes with a with a beautiful woman in the street. Um, you know, it's kind of a glimpse and their eyes lock and then that, you know, the moment kind of um, then the moment is kind of submerged into the flow of the city. And that's still to me like is, um, you know, the experience of being, say, on the London tube. And then, you you know, you kind of um, meet eyes with a stranger and you both, you know, you share that moment where you think about maybe like, um, you know, we should go off and fuck like monkeys somewhere. Um, and then it passes, the moment passes and you get off at the next tube stop and you go away along with millions of other people. And the person, you know, the other person goes on their own, goes on their own way as well. And that I think is still that kind of, um, that idea of possibility of individual possibility, which is kind of torn uh, and if this very kind of fluid context, which is constantly changing given the sheer numbers of people in the modern urban setting, I still think that is the, the best single way to encapsulate the experience of modernity, I think, at least at the individual level. Yeah, I mean, like it, it, it's great to hear that that Phil has a has a, a soul, a poetic soul, um, and then the the phrase "fuck like fuck monkeys" like monkey. came out, and I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably a bit more on brand. Um, but yeah, sorry, Alex, you, you were going to no, say no, no, I think that's right. That's right. I I think what's interesting is looking back at this now that we might see modernity as hard and solid not something that melts into air but that actually is the period of kind of large bureaucratic structures of fordism of these vertically integrated corporations um uh, of hard universalisms which couldn't be broken and now is all this time of flux and flexibility and whatever and you know of course the whole kind of uh postmodern period is all about flux and flexibility but that was what modernity was about. I guess we'll come on to this about whether, you know, what, whether there's any difference between post-modernity mm. and modernity. Um, but I, th I think that's kind of um, worth what, what this brought back to mind, you know, reading the introduction to this book is uh, how much of that element of alienation, of being overpowered, of controlled, um, of having precious things destroyed, um, all those aspects um how how those are crucial to modernity as much is as much as is the world of possibility and the fleeting nature and the 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 opening up of different experiences and all that stuff which is the kind of exciting side if you wish to seize it uh but also the element of of uh yeah of being of being oppressed of being controlled of being dominated and so on in in ways which are uh larger in scale and in intensity and uh you know more sublime perhaps than than things that existed in the in the pre-modern period which were always very much disaggregated right you know there wasn't like a single sovereign authority who could crush you for example it was just your your local lord who would crush you but it's a very different experience to um to 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 living in a world where there is a society as a whole right a, a kind of a total society there is no such thing as um a society but no i think to, just to, to build i guess on, on what both of you were saying i, I guess the, you know that point about the intensity of experience that, that phil was was saying even if momentary i think that is a really important part of it but what i took from this or what i i think this this book probably made me realize is that the modern experience is is 
is contradictory is paradoxical and so the fact that something can be two things at once um it is it isn't necessarily the easiest idea to to grasp but this idea that because i guess my, my starting point would probably in terms of trying to understand what modern life is or, or, you know, what it could be, would be the Blur album, Modern Life is Rubbish, which obviously has its, um, wears its heart on its sleeve and with, well, with and respect to that specific me. You question. accuse me of lowering the tone. I'd, I'd, um, I, 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 I keep a consistent. Well, right, well, why, is it, why is it relevant, George? Because one, because it says modern life is rubbish. So it takes an undialectical uh, one-sided view, which is one that I, probably absorbs there are some several songs on there in the chemical world everything is very 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 cheap and i that 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 appeals this idea of you know the 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 progress you know everything's cheaper but it's but it's um tainted somehow by its chemicality but anyway what i was going to say before i was so rudely interrupted was this idea that some you know life can be thrilling and, and dreadful it can be revolutionarily conservative it can be you know against kind of breaking down of all communities but at the same time expressing a will to make you know the world our own it can be serious and ironic at the same time all these things like i think it is important that and this book captures it this kind of perpetual disintegration but rebuilding um, and that's obviously the, the central metaphor of solidity and or standingness and um, and air, airfulness. But yeah, I mean, this 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 I think is this idea of um, paradox um, that you can you know that there isn't one single way. It's not just like modern life is rubbish. It has to be rubbish and at the same time it's opposite. So I think that you know really added to the kind of the blurrian perspective, um, the Ber- the Berminian perspective. For me at least um so yeah i guess maybe to to dig in more in, into the into the book um berman you know he, he he kind of you know he describes this in very evocative terms and that's also partly obviously the quote that i that i read out um at the beginning but he also looks to periodize it he kind of you know wants to give this a, a material a historic basis what is his you know do we do, do do we buy this or do you guys buy this kind of periodization that he, he puts forward in terms of the different stages of modernity yeah i think i think it's probably right explain. But... well let, i mean let's explain them a bit more first yeah so so it i mean he, he basically argues that some sometime around 1500 maybe a little bit later uh you have the beginning of modernity and that goes up until around 1790 which is the moment of the of the sort of atlantic revolutions which marks the initiation of maybe of modernity proper of political modernity i mean that's my interpretation more than it is berman's words uh and then you have this period of I guess, classical modernity, where uh, Berman kind of sees, try, and part of the object of his book is to rescue the spirit of the 19th century and its problematization of modernity and its dialectical uh, understanding of modernity, which is uh, different to what came after in the 20th century, which is the, the third period, where somehow there's a huge advance in modernity, where the world becomes ever more modern, greater you know, scientific advance, artistic exploration, more production of everything as a whole. While at the same time, um, that questioning attitude towards modernity somehow fades or that, uh, or to put it differently, maybe modernity isn't put into question so much as it was in the 19th century when the world was maybe modern, but not modern enough, you know, and to contrast, just to take the period 1500 to 1790, the the period number one, uh, that's a period in which 
people already began to feel the tourbillon social, as he calls it, the 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 which is uh, Rousseau's term, you know, this kind of social turbulence, but which isn't very economic, I think. You know, it's a sense of like we live in cities and things are very fleeting now, but I don't think you have the sense of, well, it's kind of it's pre-industrial largely. And so that's quite different to the the experience of the 19th century and then obviously the 20th century. Yeah, no, I think um, so. Just just to repeat those, I, I mean, don't have too much to add. I think that was, you know, very good, very kind of probably better answer than the way I phrased the question deserved. But yeah, early 16th century to the end of the 18th century, that's the first period, early modernity. And at that point, people living at that time can't really comprehend the changes. Um, this kind of, you know, the movement from feudalism to capitalism, it's, it's not possible to. I guess to, to, to grasp that, except um, after the fact, you know, you can you can draw out here some some phrases about wise birds kind of flying at certain points. But the, yeah, the second point, the second period, 1790s to the 20th century, this is you know the French Revolution and its consequences. This kind of you know, the, I guess modernity kind of moving into this um, self-confident energetic phase and then the 20th century which is when modernity is globalized and I guess the way that he frames it is it loses touch with its roots so I guess that's the you know is is this right what's the importance of this idea that Berman kind of advocates that the 20th century is essentially a period where modernity becomes globalized and modernists lose touch with their their kind of original revolutionary uh, roots. Well, I think that there's a, he says that we lose our, you know, protagonism in it. Or we lose our sense of uh, our place in modernity. So there's maybe still in the 20th century, especially the first half of the 20th century before Auschwitz and Hiroshima, where the, the tone becomes far more negative after that um, and far more skeptical of human endeavor of any sort, right? Because everything leads to Auschwitz or everything leads to the Gulag. Um, but prior to that, there's still more discussion of modernity, but already then I think he diagnoses the fact that our thinking about modernity has regressed, as he puts it, and also that we, we don't know how to use our modernism. We somehow talk about this swirl of a world and all these things happening, the ephemerality and the fragmentary nation of modern life, but the, the role of the human subject in it, collective or individual, somehow becomes already reduced in, in the 20th century, and much more so after, you know, after the, the, the disasters of mid-century. It's just not clear, I think. I mean, it's, I think, you know, he doesn't really talk about, at least not at this stage, he doesn't really talk about um, uh, Hiroshima or Auschwitz, about fascism, um, world war and the technology of mass destruction and so on. He kind of just characterizes that it kind of, um, <clears throat> that mod, mod, modernity expands so far that it kind of, um, it just shatters. And so you get fragments and it's anticipating, I suppose, postmodernism, because he says that you get these um, as the modern public expands, it shatters into a multitude of fragments speaking incommensurable private languages. The idea of modernity loses much of its vividness, resonance and depth, loses its capacity to organize and give meaning to people's lives. Um, you know, so that I think is uh, it doesn't really I mean, it's describing the trajectory of 200 years, but it doesn't really account for why, apart from somehow that there's kind of a limit or scale to how far modernity can expand before it um, explodes, but he doesn't really explain it. No, no, I do yeah. fear that the references to Hiroshima and Tauschwitz are things that come a little bit later in the book. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, I mean, the that's idea of, 
yeah in incommensurate private languages i think that's a that's a that's a pretty evocative phrase and i guess you know that, that I, I think that's essentially the explanation isn't it that there's a um uh, an, an internal erosion it's not that it ends up necessarily inexorably leading to catastrophic events it's just that there's something there's that kind of energy in that flux which originally drives that kind of modern project it, it exhausts itself um or, or at least that would be my my interpretation but to kind of move move things then to yeah the, I, actually, the 19- can i just add, add something to that actually is that please I do you also hinted in the 20th century what you have is um you know, that the dialectical approach basically is lost and not just the kind of Hegelian or Marxist one, because it's something that he identifies, I think, already in the introduction with with Baudelaire, for example. I mean, other people who wouldn't be uh, Hegelians or Marxists, Um, but that there's either, you know, by by the 20th century, you either have blind, uncritical enthusiasm for for modernity or uh, what he calls neo-Olympian condemnation and contempt, you know, so from on high looking at like, well, modernity is all trash modern life is rubbish and the people who inhabit it are are idiots and so you get this um you know the pro-modernism the the, the effectively the enthusiastic uh, undialectical modernizers uh where the view of modernity is one where there's little subjectivity as i already said and that there's little to do for modern man but to but then to plug in right so modernity is just something that's happening and you and you just plug into it which is actually i think very apposite reading that today if you think of literally plugging in or turning on or logging in um, and then on the contrast to that you get the anti-modernists who see us all stuck in a Weberian iron cage um, and everyone inside it is shaped by that so you know th- this kind of tragic view where where modernity offers no real possibility of escape it's just alienation and oppression and domination uh, and I think uh, I mean that's basically it that the, that you'll get what, what George said, the, the, the kind of private incommensurable languages that everybody's experience of modernity in the 20th century becomes somehow separate and fragmented, but also that there's a sort of bifurcation in the people dealing with, in how intellectually people respond to modernity, right? So intellectually, you know, you had Marx understanding the best and the worst of modernity and they came together, they were contradictory. Um, whereas afterwards, it's either just wholly good or wholly bad, effectively. I wanted to ask Alex, um, this isn't about the introduction, but it's about the preface, because he mentions there the experience of being in Brasilia. And it's like an archetypal theme in cultural discussions of modernism, the kind of the emptiness um, of this city that has no organic dimension, but is this um, highly alienating, you know, kind of um, artificial construct um a temple to bureaucratic state power all about rational planning and um i wondered if that was your experience bearing in mind bearing in mind that you're also quite you know spectrumy as well so you might not quite have you might not quite yeah i'm on the awesome spectrum thank you very much phil for bringing that to light tell us Uh, tell us about your experience of brazil no i i think i think brazilia is is kind of fascinating if it's if it's if it's a spectrum everybody's on it so just just to just to disabuse you, Phil, of, of any of any notion there. Okay. Um, so Brasilia is, yeah. I mean, it it does kind of seem to lack organic life. I mean, obviously, a kind of city has grown into it, but it does feel kind of a bit cold. It's a bit weird. I mean, it's literally very warm there all the time. Um, it's quite a pleasant climate, but there is a kind of cold distance to it. It's weird. Um, the spaces are big. You know, it's a thing. I mean, it, you know, on the one hand, you kind of 
if you love monumental architecture, it's like, wow, it's really awesome. It aims at the sublime, right? It's not just meant to be cozy and human shaped, human sized rather. Um, but at the same time, there is something kind of, you know, alienating dissonance. Certainly the Esplanade of the ministries there, it's like far too large. If you wanted to hold the demonstration there right in front, and people do in front of the uh, Esplanade of ministries, you, uh, you need millions of people to fill it out. Otherwise, it looks empty, uh, which, of course, served the military dictatorship quite well as well, because it was distant from any kind of large organic city. So, um, you know, some critics would argue that the, the, the military dictatorship, which uh, took power not very long after Brazil was inaugurated, somehow um, realized the, the kind of imminent uh, yeah, elements of, the, of Brasilia. It's the point that Berman makes, in fact. Though he, you know, he makes clear, obviously, it wasn't commissioned by the dictatorship. It somehow suited their need. It ended up kind of suited the, suiting their needs, even to the point that Niemeyer himself, the architect who um, designed much of the city, um, felt kind of somewhat tainted and um, uh, kind of indicated a deal of some some regret. Yeah, you've got a different addition to me, actually. You've got a different addition. I didn't read that, so that's interesting to know. I mean, but it's, it's I guess, um, Berman's point, or, or it's interesting because his kind of characteristic modern city isn't Brasilia, it's New York. It's the the kind of the melting pot, the, um, the, um, the, the place where there's the most kind of, you know, social uh, flux and um, not Brasilia, which is, you know, a, a city built on a kind of conscious, uh, more or less modern, modern plan. Maybe it would um, be Shanghai today, though. I mean, you know, New York, I mean is the city of the 20th century perhaps um you've been you spent some time in shanghai george um what it, was it a year 18 months uh, yeah i mean it was yeah um, a year basically and yeah um, would that maybe. would that experience of kind of ultra modernity would that correspond to life in shanghai yeah i guess there's some there's there's some interesting set of photos of the uh, Shanghai um, financial district, which is east of the river in, in Pudong, which literally means east of the east river, um, and basically it was it was like rice fields, and then you know a couple of years later, bam, all these all these buildings um, just just pop up uh, essentially, uh, and that that combined with some of the like the uh, I guess older parts of the city, which are well at least at the time that I was there, were just being relentlessly modernized and, and rationalized and you know i guess the yeah it, it, it could be the the city of the 21st century or the early 21st century just in that you have obviously um a highly directive and and powerful state being able to enact these these changes in a really compressed time frame um whereas obviously there was a lot more conflict and um i guess flux uh, disputes in in the new york case but yeah Obviously, yeah, and but I mean, I'm not. Time. I mean, I'm not really. But I'm not talking about the history. I mean, just the experience of living there. Yeah, I mean, I mean so that, that's like? what I was going to get get onto. Yeah, the 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 ma the mass of 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 signs and uh, cultures colliding, particularly in some parts of the city. I think that's yeah that that could be. I guess the, the reason why I'm kind of pulling back from saying that could be the 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 hypermodern city of the 21st centuries that the hong kong is an, another potential example it's it is obviously constrained by the by the the presence of the the, the chinese state and its particular directing of um social life within within the city although it's the most westernized part of um of the prc any anyhow i guess the 
the question that I though wanted to to move on to was about the 60s and to kind of like to kind of move this this periodization along so you know this this third stage of um of modernity in the 20th century Berman talks about there in the 60s and I, I guess I wanted to ask or to to explore with the two of you guys what whether these still apply today these kind of three characteristic attitudes to modern life affirmative negative and withdrawn primarily expressed through the arts is this I guess you know what are these and do they still apply today yeah so I, I found this interesting I it was it's the one moment in the introduction where Berman makes a very contemporary point. I mean, compare contemporary to his time, um, or actually, really, you know, kind of 10, 10 years before um, he was writing. But uh, but you know, he kind of makes an observation, which is a much more recent thing about kind of where modernism was in the in the nineteen sixties. And I mean, just to say, what just to describe them. I mean, the, the withdrawn attitude was just you know, we need pure art removed from society. We're not going to kind of engage with any social or political questions. We're just going to make beautiful art. And that's kind of, he, uh, Berman is critical of that for being lifeless and arid. Um, you know, it's the kind of freedom offered by being, trying to be a beautiful soul, just engage in pure art. But actually it's, it's, uh, it's the, I don't know, he, he describes it as being in the tomb, basically. Um, I don't know if that's visible today at all. I mean, I, you know, there's people seriously ask, you know, is art even possible today? I don't know enough about art to, to even try to answer that question. But I think I'm not sure if there's much engagement in or an attempt to engage in pure art. Maybe there is maybe some of same, some of contemporary art does try to do that. And maybe that's why I feel so perplexed by it, because I'm like, what is I'm, this trying to say? Or what is this trying to do? It's just, is it, am I just meant to find it pretty? I don't find it especially yeah. pretty. So what actually is it? It's just an experience, you know, um, maybe that maybe no, I, I, contemporary I, art. I, I agree with you. I don't think there is much arts for art's sake. I mean, he 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 says Roland Bart is an example of this kind of withdrawn um art is the only kind of modernist concern um that's characteristic of the the with the withdrawal, one of those three attitudes. But yeah, I don't think art for art's sake today is particularly popular. I think art is extremely uh, politicized and you know you could say is, is better or worse f for that probably the latter um but yeah i don't I, I don't think that seems to be a particularly uh dominant uh, kind of a, a approach today but anyway I, I i stopped you that was that if, if that's one what two yeah and three. So, the, so the second one is is with neg is a negative attitude so pure negativity it's kind of destroy everything or engage in nihilistic provocation um which uh I'm not sure if that's true either. I mean, you saw that with punk, for example, um, and you see that with certain kind of modern contemporary art provocations. Um, and maybe you see it even kind of more culturally or politically with um, the, I guess, certain social justice warrior aspects, maybe around gender today, which is tries to be kind of provocative and say that all pre all previous history of which was men divided into uh, men, <laughs> women, humankind divided into men and women of two genders, we're going to explode all that. And now we have this whole pro proliferation of different genders. Maybe that is an attitude of uh, a, a negative attitude, which still persists. I don't know. What's interesting is Berman's um, critical remarks on that, which is that, uh, that negative attitude, the purely negative modernism of the 1960s, assumes that life is just kind of hunky-dory, basically that everything is calm and fine and happy. And maybe in the 1960s, 
it, uh, it, it may have seemed so for certain people, because of course it was the, uh, the, the peak of Western civilization, uh, in my, in my, uh, estimation in terms of, uh, living standards and rising expectations and so on. But, uh, but that, you know, if the, the reality was that it was still the modern world, right? So there was a real turbulence outside, but the negative attitude, the negative modernism assumes that everything is, uh, calm and tranquil and tries to inject turbulence and, negativity and even ugliness into the world through art, which is a different attitude to previous modernists who would seek to transform actually existing noisiness and chaos of social life into beauty and truth, uh, which is the way that Berman puts it. So it's kind of interesting because it's like that punk attitude of like, which is something that I would even identify myself in like my own attitude to modernity when I was 16, let's say, you know, this kind of adolescent attitude of like, oh, everything's placid and boring, whatever, let's shake things up and shock people and fuck things up and get shit started, right? Um, when the reality is that life is yeah. very turbulent and uncertain and all the rest. Yeah, let's let's uh, rattle some cages. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the, you know, to, to kind of summarize the the affirmative pop art, um, pop modernism, the the, the negative. Which like, is the punk, third one. Yeah, the, the, the negative punk, you know, modernism should be about subversion. You need to intervene into the, yeah, the placid waters of, of um often like dull consumerism with some kind of um something which is gonna like is gonna shock people into to realizing what's going on and that withdrawal into art for art's sake i mean i think the point that he makes is like is is dialectically they all appeal to a certain extent they're all one-sided they're all partly true they're all limited because they all do grasp something which is which is which has an element of truth but if you only take one of the three of them or even two of the three of them you're missing out something of the the totality of, of, of that of that experience yeah. can, I, can um, I just make make a comment just about the third yeah. one the, the affirmative one where you know that that's the one which i think is most uh that, that most persists right so the withdrawn one we said which maybe not so not so present the negative one to a certain extent but the affirmative one, which tries to meld art with commerce, fashion, politics, etc., and Perman identifies it as a precursor to postmodernism, um, postmodernism and culture, is something that you probably see today still, right? I mean, just the kind of complete abandonment of any pure art whatsoever or art for art's sake in favor of complete commercialization, right? That art is all, always already commercial even before it even before it gets onto the page. Um, and you can see that with contemporary, a lot of contemporary Hollywood, contemporary Hollywood cinema, for example, which is just all completely subsumed already into commercial imperatives, much more than, than it was, you know, in the 1960s. Are you, are you, are you sure about that? I mean, what about the Marvel, the Marvel comic <laughs> universe? Isn't that an example of a kind of, uh, you, unique affirmative, set of affirmative modernism? <laughs> no, what? Negative. Um... What is it? Sorry. I think uh, I I would I would kind of um, respect anybody who went through the the the, the process of the project of watching all of all of the Marvel uh, comic universe films in in order. That'd because be good. I'd like someone to write something about that, so I would never have to watch any of them. People because people talk about the, the the decline of grand narratives, but here's a grand narrative, right? You have all of these stories fitting into an overarching um, narrative never ending <laughs> unfortunately an adolescent grand narrative I mean, it's, it's a good question i'm not sure there's a grand narrative it's a it's a shared universe but i'm not sure there's a, a kind of grand narrative yeah, it was which ties it was it, it was the world Wasn't will be like, destroyed yeah and Thanos then will destroy the world and then like the world that. did get destroyed but spoilers several spoilers oh. alerts um but then you can go back in time and undestroy the world but 
the fact that you've undestroyed the world creates a kind of um, uh, an, uh, an energy pulse, which in fact will like doubly destroy the world. Oh God. Okay. Let's move. Well, on. that's dialectics. Uh, <laughs> also, I just revealed my ignorance because I have no idea about these, these things. Anyhow. Anyway. Okay. It probably is time to move on. We were talking before we started recording. Um, Cause I was like, do, do we live in a postmodern society today? Uh, or is it all of this a bit passe? Uh, passe? Um, and I think the two of you said uh, in response to, to my question, what about the zoomification? Isn't that the, the, the um the melting of solid into into air the kind of the you know the the d um objectification I mean, I mean, that, that, that's sort of a misrepresentation of, of, social of what we were saying but yeah okay yeah. well sorry then i don't i actually didn't didn't intend to to misrepresent but you were saying you. how how static what did you say you were saying that life feels extraordinarily static and rigid and immobile in contrast to the way in which Berman presents the kind of the flux and the changeability and the dynamism. And we said, well, you know, but like, isn't the experience of Zoom precisely, I mean, you know, uh, whether whether you like it or not, it is very much the experience of um, something which was tangible, routine, organized in very particular ways around commute, around uh, a timetable, and a life structured around the office has now been totally dissolved into the ether of cyberspace. And that would seem to fit, you know, for better or for worse, that would seem to fit this um, sense of all that is solid melts into air very effectively. That was what we said. Okay, I, I think my point was how how good would it be instead of recording this podcast on Zoom if if Alex commuted <laughs> to the UK okay, yeah. and we could we could all meet up in person just much better I mean, weekly or even better I'd happily commute to happily commute I'm happy to Sao for you Paolo. to do that <laughs> I'm um, happy to go to Sao Paulo regularly if the you know, if the capacity <laughs> was there maybe our listeners want to support that perhaps commute <laughs> to Sao Paulo. But like, is basically this book out of date? Like, it's from the eighties. Eighties is 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 over. Get over it. We now live in a postmodern society. Talking about modern modernity, it's it's dissolved itself. It's um, uh, so it's fractured. This, it's 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 done. Get over there's it. There's always this claim that that is itself part of modernity, um, and you know, so the experience of postmodernism can also be incorporated into the flux. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, whether you agree or not, um, I think it's, you know, it's a point worth thinking about. Well, I, I think it's legitimate to still talk about it. And certainly the criticisms of the postmodernists is very famous criticisms, calling them, you know, political refugees from the 60s um, who collapsed into this pessimism as a result of their defeats and of the experience of the 70s. It's a very um, famous uh, political denunciation of how postmodernism emerged from political defeat. I mean, he's not the only one to make it, but he is one of the most articulate exponents of that view. And it's an important, you know, it's an important claim and one that I think bears rethinking given um, all the kind of historical amnesia um, that you see on the left today and their inability to think through very basic political questions of um, victory and defeat. Yeah, I think that's right. Though I think we have to be careful and distinguish postmodernism as an artistic, uh, you know, generally artistic wave, postmodern, poststructural thought, uh, 
um, you know, he mentions Foucault in the introduction, maybe you could take him as the, you know, prime example, uh, and post-modernity as a kind of experience or a historical epoch, and because they're kind of different things, right? So, the, you know, the postmodernism in art is about kind of depthlessness, play, spontaneity, and so on, which, uh, you know, Berman is, is critical about it. I don't know if it's in the introduction or later, but he kind of satirizes it like, oh, yeah, as if you're the first people to ever think about that, right? As if you're you're the first people, or maybe, maybe actually this comes from somewhere else and I was going to bring this up so I might as well do this now which is um in David Harvey's The Condition of Postmodernity which was written 10 years after Berman's book. Oh my book. god what a show off. Um well I mean it's a reading club but you know it's like I'm not going to show up unprepared. Um but he he makes a point I think one that I that I was just uh elaborating there about the fact that uh you know postmodernity is not that novel, right? At post sorry, postmodernism in art is not particularly novel. They think they're the first people to do irony and play or something in art. Um, but when other people did it, it was more socially grounded somehow. And, and in postmodernity, it's just completely frivolous. Um, but there's another point which which is relevant here in terms of whether we think it's still postmodern. Are we still in postmodernity? I guess that's a question, right? Are we still in postmodernity? Um, is that uh, he? Uh, excuse me, um, David Harvey cites Baudelaire, say that modernity is the transient, the fleeting, and the contingent, and as well as the eternal and the immutable. At least that's the, the artist's relationship to it. And Harvey is maybe a little bit skeptical of Berman. So Harvey suggests that Berman uh, is perhaps overly sensitive and overemphasizes the sense of ephemerality and fragmentation, and therefore overemphasizing that side of Baudelaire's dual formation. Um, which is interesting um, because, you know, the, uh, George's whole introduction to the book emphasized precisely that element of ephemerality and, and change and so on. So I, I'm not sure. I, 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 if, he over, if Berman overemphasizes ephemerality in modernity, that means that post-modernity, which is even more ephemeral and fleeting and so on, um, is, looks pretty much continuous with modernity. Right. My, so I guess my yeah, I, I think not to get too much into discussing Harvey because we could even have that as uh, another another reading club. But I think the if I remember if I remember that book, it's a little while since I read it. The idea is that the the, the modern subject is 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 unitary in in some sense, and so is um you know is can be alienated or there is an entire ex or a whole experience that you can have of, of modern life and then harvey says well actually like early 70s onwards like the compression of space time all these material factors mean that the postmodern subject you don't even have that unitary experience you have this mm. i think he describes it as schizophrenic you have this like very divided very kind of fractured experience of the world so that and that has some very serious political consequences and so i would propose that we come back to this to this question in in one of the things that i wanted to ask at the end which is like what's the political consequences um of all this because um one thing that or, or the second thing or the second main thing that i wanted to to discuss was and since it is my you know my episode saying that i want to discuss it means like we're going to go on to discuss it i'm just being don't 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 polite, be apologetic own your authority george just do it okay uh, thanks for that, Alex. But we're going now on to discuss something more interesting, which I have, uh, which go. I have down. Um, but we will come back to it. Don't worry. I'm. I can be the, the the iron fist in the velvet glove and be be uh, polite and kind when moving on. However, what I did want to discuss was this. So he essentially grounds his entire theory of modernity in 
in in Marx. So what is a Marxist theory of modernity? Like this, I think is there is a chapter later in the book where he, he goes more into this, but I think we would be it would be remiss of us not to to draw out some of these points from the introduction. I mean, I have to say I kind of struggled with this. I don't think I'm not sure there is one, at least, or at least it doesn't really seem to me to um have yeah. much substance um from the way Berman characterizes it. It's um you can talk about a subjective experience which you could link to certain kinds of economic, you could explain by reference to certain kind of economic categories um, coming from Marxist political economy. Um, but I don't think that's, a th you know, that's not really what he does. And it's not, doesn't seem to me a theory of modernity. It's an account, maybe a phenomenology of modernity or something like that, um, you know, kind of an, a conceptualized experience of modernity. Um, but beyond kind of characterizing modern society as this dynamic, unstable, contradictory um, type of society. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be much of a theory like, um, yeah, it's not an object. I, I, I kind of agree with Phil here. I, I wasn't really sure how to answer the question, because I'm not sure he has a theory of modernity. It's not a central object of his in the way that capitalism is right. And capitalism, both as a social system, as a historical epoch and so on. Modernity isn't that and it's interesting that Berman even comments that uh, Marx isn't ordinarily associated with any sort of modernism at all. Um, he tries to tease out what is Mo Marx's attitude to, to modernity, right? But it's something which is uh, tacit, or maybe imminent in, in, in Marx, rather than being kind of an explicit theory. Um, I think the only hint that you have in the introduction of this, I just want the only thing I'll say on this, is that he suggests that even after a socialist revolution, you, you know, that socialist revolution will itself be undermined and will itself be overthrown by something else. Right. And uh, that would then suggest that more modernity and capitalism are not um, completely overlapping or not completely contiguous. Right. So that you could have a post capitalist yeah. modernity. Um, that's and I mean, that's Berman hinting at that, not at all explicitly. Um, so that's the only hint I think I can I can find in there of some sort of theory of modernity. Yeah, I, I get I think that's a, you know, a valid point that communism is the end of the prehistory of humanity. So if you want to talk about like when for Marx would uh, humanity enter a truly modern period, it's um, with the uh, you know, emancipation of potentialities in under communism. I think I'm. I think in fact my my note. I might be sort of cheating. Um, it in to the to the extent of uh, this the answer to this question, or at least my notes probably then come from the later chapter on Marx in this book and not the introduction. But I will. I will just to give listeners a, a hit of of knowledge. Uh, I will just expand on this a little bit. But I think. What is interesting here is is the way that that Berman emphasizes development as important to Marx's understanding of the human human potentialities under capitalism or um, under a you know a form of society that that follows feudalism and so it is about freedom and development and these kind of classic liberal ideas and not equality it's a it's a kind of an obvious point right but anybody banging on about Marx as a theory a theorist of equality obviously doesn't understand the first thing about about you know about marxism but i think this this humanistic idea of the self that grows out of the emergence of the reality of bourgeois economics and like that those potentialities which are unleashed um and which marx and engels talk about in the first chapter of the communist manifesto that is an important i think that is 
like that is something which um which Berman is particularly interested in and all this language of like heat and cold nakedness fails halos sober senses it's this kind of it's like overwrought kind of sweaty energetic like this this is the the Marxist view of modernity that it puts the individual in this in this kind of contradictory um, situation but the economic forces which are acting on the individual are just accelerating and always growing whereas under feudalism there is that staticness um, which so there is a kind of a really different determination of individual um, personalities under capitalism and that I think is you know probably what I was kind of aiming that in that in that um in that question um but to come back to the time I mean, he, he, he does say that yeah, it's, on. it's a uniquely modern voice right and he, he gives the example he uses marx and nietzsche as particularly and then he hints at dostoevsky and baudelaire but he chooses marx and nietzsche to exemplify this uh, modern voice and they're obviously very different philosophers uh, to say the least um but he in both senses i think he he tries to draw attention to a certain kind of tremendousness of, of the possibilities of modernity. And he, specifically with regard to Marx, argues that Marx aims to make people feel, make people feel. And obviously that's not the normal way that you would understand Marx as, as someone you know referring to emotions. But the idea specifically is that he tries to make people feel uh, the tremendous force of conservatism, which only barely manages to tap down eruptive modern forces. So he he cites a speech that Marx gave Marx gave in the early 50, 1850s, talking about you know the 1848 revolutions were just a kind of prelude of some sort, and that now you have all the old orders kind of you know um, trying to tap down and hold down. You know, it, it feels like 20,000 tons or something on top of us, but it's not going to last. Right. So it, that's, I think, very important in terms of the modern experience uh, in that there's always these conflicting forces trying to hold down all these possibilities. Right. And uh, Marx wants to make you yeah, feel I, that I mean, both the possibilities and the feeling of, yeah. of being of, of being held down, which is interesting because, uh, you know, George, you were you know complaining about feeling like it's all static and stuck and whatever because you're stuck at home. Maybe that is precisely one of these moments of uh, of feeling like uh, everything's tapped down, but there are these eruptive modern forces which might throw all everything into chaos again. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's two sides of the same coin in, in the sense that like the massive changes in the last few years as much as they're not my cup of tea to, to put it in in those terms it it makes you feel i guess it makes you it makes you feel old or makes you feel the the um appeal of conservatism because things are like the qualitative natures of of the changes in social life that we've experienced in in all of our lives our lifetimes um that does make you realize the underlying flux and volubility of social life but also probably um yearn for some sort of stability perhaps or at least you can understand You're just getting gold in that, other words well that's what i was saying i, I mean I, I i think it's a social uh it's a social force not a um, an individual biographical um failing or aging or whatever um but yeah i mean i guess i guess that that's it right that the the potential for qualitative gigantic social changes is is inherent in the sort of society that, that we live in and that is going to have effects in terms of the way that you feel and appreciate and understand um the appeal of conservatism 
but anyway on to some of the wider themes um of this of this book so i mean i think it's it's um not the only as you know i think that that's what they say that's what the british broadcasting corporation says this isn't the only theory of modernity available there are others out there so there are a couple that that berman just touches on in, in the introduction and one of which is is nietzsche's and this i think he he sees this as a quite a nihilistic one in, to the extent that he sees or he he uh, portrays nietzsche as seeing um modernity as an emptying of, of values a kind of a destruction of a fixed um fixed totems a kind of an, an undermining of 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 kind of you know traditional moral systems and that having its its own set of uh, of, of social and, and political consequences and also weber's um so weber's idea of this increase this idea of rationalization the increasing um appeal and dominance of rational legal forms of authority so this this idea that traditional and charismatic forms of authority so they're kind of ways of ruling society ordering ordering social life that appeal to to these um either charismatic leader and, and their appeal or the the kind of traditional um things have always been done this way these lose their um their their, their moorings and instead you have a um sort of authority which is grounded in in efficiency and rules um and this ultimately leads to the iron cage the the infamous iron cage or some people construct it the steel hard casing which both constrains and protects the the modern individual anyway um how how do, i mean is is it worth comparing this kind of marxist or berminian view of modernity to the nietzschean or the weberian I... yes it is <laughs> i okay, mean cool. i think okay, by virtue of <laughs> no but by <laughs> virtue of what you were describing in itself i think i mean it's you know you can make the clay case that the um you know the complexity of the phenomena um exhausts attempts to account for it you know you could say that it is um you know it's multifaceted kind of uh, character necessitates that it can only it has to be captured through different accounts even if some of those accounts are perhaps more partial um and you can say you know so i think that's part of it but i think it also the very contrast that you provided by giving us the the brief summary of each of those views is in itself helpful you know it's useful in itself i think um and even thanks, the limits i mean thanks I think for saying that thanks for saying that i was helpful and useful no but i'm answering your question right and i think so it's it's you can see by virtue of the contrast that it helps to specify different elements and so i think it is i think it is useful to account for them and even if some are more partial than others like i think you know the iron cage um doesn't capture the fluidity the idea of it just as an iron cage or something rigid doesn't capture that dynamism and that sense of pregnant possibility, which Berman captures more effectively, but it does capture something about the rigidity of large scale bureaucratic social organization and um, the threat that large organizations and large hierarchical kind of structures pose to the individual that is also a genuine experience of modernity if not a complete one an experience of modern social life of capitalism even if max weber himself wouldn't use terms in that way so yes i, I think it's interesting that he berman suggests a lineage of sorts between weber and then marcuse 
and then Foucault, which is probably an unlikely sort of uh, pairing. Well, it's not a pairing. It's three of them. I don't know what you call a pair of three, but anyway, um, where he sees in, in uh, Weber this sort of, again, this sort of neo-Olympian disdain for um, not just for the cage, but also for those who are held Why in the Why Surely just Olympian. Well, that's a good question. I don't know. He says neo-Olympian. I, I, uh, but anyway, um, the, yeah, so th- this kind of uh, looking down from on high and going, yes, we're all controlled. We're all uh, dominated by bureaucratic structures and we're all kind of feeble and unable to break out for them or kind of emaciated subjects and in some ways kind of pathetic. And so there's a loathing, not just for the structures, but for, for the people as well. And he finds that to a certain extent in the Marcusian New Left, where instead of, uh, you know, denunciations of mass man, you get denunciations, as, as you had in the you know earlier part of the 20th century, you get a one dimensional man, uh, which led, you know, the, the new left either to search for new subjects outside. So whether it's in the third world or for, you know, criminals or lumpen proletarians or whoever else or minorities within society who would be the new proletarian that the new revolutionary subjects and not uh, the working class or to despair. And that element of, uh, of, of despair is something that he sees in, in Weber, as I said, you know, it's kind of, it ends up with this sort of tragic liberalism where, you know, you want to be a liberal individualist, but you don't really believe in the possibilities of uh, true individualism. And then again, finally in Foucault, where, where he, he concludes, which in some ways, I, I guess Berman suggests he's the last modernist or the last guy to problematize modernity properly. And uh, and Foucault also dwells in iron bars and human nullities and sees no real possibility for freedom. And again, this is what Phil mentioned earlier about the, the Foucault in some ways being the intellectual reflection of the failure and disappointments of the 1960s. So it's interesting that there's a kind of thread that he teases uh, out there in these in these very different thinkers, um, which is a common attitude to, to modernity, a common attitude which doesn't uh, is, un- is unable to really see the possibility for subjectivity and modernity and only sees the kind of crushing dead weight of uh, bureaucracy and massive structures and so on. No, I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. You know, the, <clears throat> the continuity between those, I guess, essentially kind of negative theorists of modernity, seeing society as an iron cage, seeing everything as a, a prison, seeing um, all people as, as one dimensional and not political actors. And, you know, that, that that kind of um i think it's it's kind of a all leads to a political dead end i think that's that was very well put and that actually leads us nicely on to what i wanted to sort of finish on which is the i guess it's sort of the the political consequences of of you know we may actually have disagreed as to whether there is a marxist theory of modernity um but you know what does it mean that we live in a visibly contradictory society if 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 you would accept that this is the case or at least that Berman was right at the time of writing that this this was the case at that point in time that everything seemed pregnant with its contrary and this is a this is a kind of I think a defining political starting point of um of Berman's project at least I mean is this is there a possibility to master these these contradictions politically but I think so I mean it's um it's the ultimate question because it's not that there is there a possibility i mean it's the premise the premise of marxism i think is that it is necessary that these um contradictions be overcome 
and that the contradictions themselves necessitate their overcoming. And I think that is, in fact, the the goal of Marxism is to the very fact that it exists or that revolutionary Marxism as at least as the 19th century, the way it emerged in the 19th century, was conceived as possible by virtue of the internally conflicted, the internal contradictions of um, industrial, modern industrial society. And it's the hardest, it's the most difficult and hardest thing. And I think it is what makes Marxist, specifically Marxist politics, so um, difficult. Um, and we've touched upon, I mean, you know, we've touched upon this partly before about in a yeah, previous the last episode. reading club. Yeah. Yeah. And the last, last reading club, but we talked about the fact, you know, that Marxism kind of, um, on the one hand, it emerges when we, yeah, it was the Tamash reading, it emerges from um, frustration at injustice. Um, popular anger with oppression, um, and yet it seeks to go beyond those things, um, and it doesn't seek to simply, you know, end injustice or um, alleviate oppression, but rather to transform the context, the very context within which those terms are even meaningful. And I think that idea of a, you know, the political consequences of a visibly contradictory society is immensely, it's immensely difficult, and it is the way in which uh, Marxism itself has to you know is i mean what makes it so difficult and i suppose almost esoteric from the viewpoint of our contemporary era when there is such little kind of um when there is no real meaningful organized labor movement to speak of and no working class politics um you know really to speak of either um beyond kind of occasional eruptions in the form of populism that you have it becomes very difficult to conceive of how those contradictions might be meaningfully navigated. Um, and I think that is, you know, so, I mean, you know, you think about, say, just uh, the issues of populism and technocracy as contradictions. How do you navigate those contradictions? Because on the one hand, you know, if um, populism has its appeal, you know, it kind of its affinity with democracy, its plebeian kind of energy, its hostility to snootiness and to um, the PMC domination of the state. And on the other hand, um, there is no avoiding the fact that in modern societies, you need reliance on um, tremendous reservoirs of complex knowledge and that you can't scorn. You can't simply scorn and deride the idea of um, representation or the idea of um, technical expertise. How do you navigate that, that um, you know, that contradiction? And it's true. It is genuinely I, tremendously difficult and particularly outside a, the possibility of party politics. I have a I have a solution. Or the beginnings of a solution. I'm already flinching in anticipation of how terrible <laughs> yeah. it's going to be. <laughs> Why? Just because of just because of the way you phrased your response. Well, no, it's it's the it, it's consonant with the the analysis that Berman put forward, and I think the one that you did as well, which is that the task of Marxism today is to defend and extend bourgeois rights. So all these ideas of freedom, freedom of expression, civil liberties, those things need to be fully defended in order to be extended and that's the so the contradiction isn't it isn't escaped away from into populism instead you look to the the kind of liberal bourgeois i i, I kind forms, of I, and you try and you push them forward as, as much as possible so you, you you try and be the true the true liberal the true bourgeois in this kind of petty bourgeois society that that, that's in. not unappealing i mean you know normatively like i have no problem with it i've just 
think it might be impossible insofar as that refers back to a certain 19th century conception, which might be impossible today. So for example, passports, not vaccine passports, which is a stupid term, not um, the levels of airport security, but I just mean needing a passport to cross borders, right? That would be a 19th century, that would be to a 19th century uh, individual's view of, of freedom, completely inimical. Right, you couldn't uh, impossible a passport to cross borders, and yet it is completely so part of our lives. It's not even under question, and I don't think you, George, are even proposing, for example, to abolish passports, for instance. So I, I just, I I'll, think I'll, I'm, I'm I only raising mean, that. I'm only raising that to kind of draw out the the depth of the problem. No, I agree. I agree with that. I wouldn't I mean. include. I wouldn't include freedom of movement in one of those those bourgeois. But then you're not a bourgeois liberal. Yeah. I mean, I think the issue is that precisely that bourgeois liberalism enters into contradiction, and so I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I there it, many, many liberal rights I would defend, and I would see freedom of movement. I would, you know, defend a liberal, um, a liberal migration policy as liberal as possible, and I would, I think, freedom of movement is still something to be aspired to, but only under circumstances of. Um, democratic control and without democratic oversight and control of that you know if it's not won democratically it's completely meaningless but that aside um, I think you know I'd agree with Alex I think the it's insufficient simply to imagine that we you know that those you defend classical classical rights classical liberal rights and simply radicalize them um, and that in conditions of um, global modernity that it's um they can only be kind of reconstituted at a higher level um the it's impossible simply to defend them in circumstances where they almost by themselves become you know meaningless conditions of privacy say um you know defending privacy in the context and this is when we talked about you know this returns to our conversation earlier when we with um on benjamin braddon's work how do you defend privacy meaningfully in a world in which um algorithmic prediction of your behavior is, you know, not perfect, but, um, you know, effective in many ways. Um, and that seems to me, you know, you need, it's incumbent on us to defend privacy, but it seems to me at the same time insufficient. And that I think is, is our challenge. So I don't think it's sufficient simply to um, retreat, kind of circle the wagons around liberalism. That is insufficient. Um, I don't think I said it was sufficient, but it's necessary. And I mean, that's, I mean, okay, I think well, in which case my, I'd agree with that, but I, I, I think would, that, I think that's, I think that's essentially my point is that we, uh, or that Marxism starts from a perspective of a bourgeois society, which who's the contradictions of which need to be, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. There's a German word for when you kind of combine two things and you, you kind of move on to the next, the next dialectical level. I'm sure. Our, what our is it? Uh, what might it be? Slips, slips my mind at this point in time. Um, but that is a starting a, a starting assumption. But we're not even at that stage now. I mean, like the <laughs> like, if you think that we have freedom of speech or or any kind of classical understanding of democracy or civil liberties in 2021, like, then I I don't know. You know, don't really know what to say because who who, who claims that? Trans- you... I don't know. I'm I'm yeah. constructing a straw man. Just let me let let me have this. Like this person who who none of us have met or ever would meet, but is very useful for my particular argument at this point in time. Um, that person, I disagree with them and I think they're wrong. Um, no, but I guess, I guess my, my point is basically like the, 
the, the, the conditions essentially almost like the conditions for a Marxist politics of a, of a, of a bourgeois society, which is, which has this forward motor power, which Berman talks about in the book, that is not a take, that is not something we can take for granted now. So there, there is a condition of needing to even, even get to that stage, um, which is sort of the material possibility of, of a Marxist politics. But anyway, mm, anyway but I think, I'm, well, sure, uh, I'm probably not going to convince the two of you guys on this. I was I, just, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. Because... Of what? You just said we agreed. You said it's not it's necessary but not sufficient. I mean, I agree it's necessary. Yeah, but it's, it's necessary but not sufficient. Yeah, I, I mean, I think well, is, it, the... is it is it the first thing to do then? Is what the first thing to do to defend bourgeois rights? I can't think of any bourgeois right I wouldn't defend. But is it the first thing to do? You've you've got your to do list. <laughs> is it is it at the top? Like in the not? context in the context of um, of the bio security state, I think yes. But I don't get your point. I mean, you know, they, it's a long, it's a long fucking list. Yeah, I, to to throw something else in there and to bring us back a little bit more to the text is that the the issue in relation to you know an ostensible Marxist theory of uh, of modernity. Again, not not really convinced about that, but it's that can we have uh, mastery over the historical process when we are no longer problematizing modernity? which is to say society is no longer in question. Society is naturalized. So we don't see ourselves anymore in living in a particular form of society. And so even those anti-modernist or hyper-pro-modernist, whether you're, it's the futurists or it's, uh, you know, Weberians, whoever it is, or even for that matter, you know, deep ecologists, they're all problematizing modernity in some way. But by and large, we don't problematize modernity today. I say we, not us on this podcast or our political tradition or whatever. I'm just saying, you know, contemporary Western society does not problematize modernity. It's just faded into the background. Uh, we don't, you know, it's taken for granted. And I get, that's the question I get. That's the question and I'm also putting this to you guys. I'm curious, like, do we need to problematize modernity again? Because that's what Berman wants to do. He wants to return to that. He wants to revive that 19th century spirit of a dialectical approach to modernity. And, and so the idea of modernity, of being live, of being some the worst thing that's ever happened and the best thing that's ever happened. And, uh, and, and specifically modernity, not capitalism. Is that necessary that we, that we I would that? I would I would say, yeah, I would, to, I would, I think I would to a certain extent agree with you and just say that it seems to me like the dominant approach to modernity today is a, is a very negative one that the like environmentalism fundamentally takes the start of industrial society as the beginning of the end of, of like, of mankind, of like possibility of like non-destructive like life or whatever. And so there is a, you know, there is a job to be done of, of I, I, articulating the, I, I, the progressive possibilities of, of production. and but I, of, but I would say, I would say even more dominant, much more dominant, in fact, than the environmental negative aspect of modernity is, an, is a purely affirmative, uncritical one, because that's what's, that's what's predominant. It is, hey, technology is going to solve our, all our problems. It's all of Silicon Valley, right? It is the tech, the biosecurity state, because that is modern bureaucracy and the modern state being able to resolve all problems through whatever measures it it's, it sees as necessary. So it's really an affirmative. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you about the negative, uh, the, the kind of an, negative anti-modernism of, of the Greens, but I would say that that co very much coexists with, um, and interestingly, it doesn't put into question the affirmative modernism, which is the, 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 the basically the way that the world works today, you know? No, it's a good it's it, it's 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 a good point. I mean, 
yeah, I guess the it's kind of almost a pat answer that you need the dialectical appreciation of the of of both of both sides. Which no, but not just a dialectical, is... but not just a dialectical appreciation, just an appreciation for starters would be something. Because what I, my my argument is that the affirmative modernism, it's a terrible way to put it, but effectively the kind of all the pro-technology aspect, which is which is the more or less the ruling ideology, right? Technology will solve our problems. We'll get an app for something and whatever, right? That whole attitude doesn't even put into question modernity or society. It doesn't say, "Hey, look, we look in this. We live in this particular type of society where we have all these things available which we didn't in the past." Well, maybe it says that. Maybe it does say we have things which are available which we didn't have in the past, but it doesn't really deal with question of society i mean it, it, it's a very kind of anti-social vision it's individuals being able to to do things right yeah no i mean i guess my my personal approach to this would be at one and the same time recognizing the class nature of society but also like having a look through the history of inventions and being kind of thrilled by that so seeing that there is some underlying like possibility there um you know reading a book about the about victorian inventions and just thinking like this is this is pretty cool um and i mean that's you know that might be a bit of a kind of a, a pat answer but i think it's it's not i guess that i guess i guess the the it's the former of those things like the, the ability to see society as a class society which is is the thing that's absent not an appreciation of the the possibilities of um of technology and how those because then it because then you can't really see how those possibilities are uh, affected by the current form of society that we have but anyway no, but, but, but it's but it's actually it's actually just one final point is that the modernity is narrowly associated if it if if modernity is thought about at all narrowly with productive forces and with technology right and not the social totality not even questions of necessarily even of urbanization or uh whatever um but but you know the whole possibility, the whole when what Berman's project is in this book is to um, bring it all together and to treat modernity as this total thing, which applies to art as well as to science. Um, so, so the point, so the so the point, and that, but that's what we've lost, I think, as well, because we don't have the, that total conception. Mm -hmm. It's it's you, you might you might you might defend art against science as maybe the hippies did right science science meaning effectively production economy everything bureaucracy all that stuff is oppressive and we need to defend kind of the more artistic side of modernity or you might do the opposite and just defend the scientific aspects of technology but you're not interested in all the social possibilities that modernity brings up the view of totality is lost in other words yeah um, that look at you in point no I mean. I'm, I'm, I wanted to though, just, uh, touching on what you're saying, Alex, the, the artistic view of modernity, um, ask if there's no other comments, like what would be the good, what would be good closing music for this, um, for this episode? Cause I had some ideas like on the one hand, like essentially the question is like, what, what's the most modernist, uh, like music on the one hand, maybe some Charles Mingus and on the other some modern lovers um well, well, what, why is modern what, lovers appropriate other than having modern in their name because they have modern in their name and because <laughs> roadrunner is a good song and there's actually loads of great songs on, on that album and because they're like actually really conservative um so they they show that <laughs> that side of modernity 
Um, maybe he's, blur, he's very at home. Maybe. He's a very at home in 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 the modernity of the fifties and sixties, and is like, yeah, this is cool. Hey, hippies, don't hate on this stuff. It's we it, the modern world's great. Um, so it's actually a conservative modernism, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, or but maybe maybe blur then maybe um. My suggestion would be uh, Stravinsky, the right of spring, or to be properly dialectical, the rights and wrongs of spring. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> I'd be for Charles Mingus. Well, uh, there, there, are, there, there are options then. I, I think we, but we, we already have some pretty good music on this podcast, so we don't even need to. Uh, that is also true. The nature of to... modern authority means that it's the editor who ultimately will decide this question. So uh, we'll leave this here. <laughs> uh, just, just one fi- <laughs> probably uh just one final thing uh to announce the last reading club of the year will be on cold intimacies the making of emotional capitalism uh eva Iluz's fantastic little book it's relatively short at little over 100 pages um so uh, you should be able to read that to follow along do send us in your questions we're going to be recording that on the 14th of december so if you do want to you want us to discuss your question or comment, uh, do send them in before then. And we are, we'll be back next year with a revamped reading club. We'll be announcing the reading list uh, at the turn of the year. So all that to look forward to. And that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.